We're commencing our new series in the Gospel according to Mark. We're going to read the first uh, 13 verses of chapter 1 together. Uh, Say some introductory uh, points about Mark's Gospel. uh, The Gospel according to Mark. uh, the, The book and its structure, the author and so on. And then say something about the text we'll read as well. And uh, we'll work our way through this book over uh, the ensuing weeks that the Lord gives us until he returns. So Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You're my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended to him. We thank God for his work in giving us the scriptures in all of their fullness. And he's given us... Uh, four accounts of the life and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ that together help us to get a full picture of what the Lord's life was like here on earth and particularly his years of ministry as they are known. And Mark is one of the contributors to the four. You've got Matthew and John who were apostles of the Lord Jesus sent out by him with his authority to speak his teaching. So they have authority in themselves from Jesus to speak on Jesus' behalf. So Matthew and John have the authority there in the Gospels that are given to us. We then have Mark and we have Luke. Luke, an historian and a doctor who spent time with the apostles. A lot of time with the apostles and Paul in particular. And we have Mark here who by piecing various bits and pieces together that were given as evidence in the scriptures would point us to being a man who also spent time with Jesus, spent time with the apostles after Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And he was with Paul and also Peter because Peter makes a reference to him in his first letter. Now, Christian tradition tells us that Peter told Mark about the life of Jesus and he captured it and wrote it down and it was the first, the earliest of the biography accounts of 
of the life of Jesus, probably written around AD 60, which is not too far away from when 1 Peter was written. So if, as was said by Peter at the end of his letter, Peter, when he's sending greetings, includes Mark among them, he has been spending time with Peter and has had first-hand experience from Peter recounted to him that he's captured and he's written down. So you have two apostles and you have two men who are very closely associated with the work of the apostles. There is a hint as well that there was a young man in the garden of Gethsemane who ran away whenever the uh, soldiers came to capture Jesus. And it's in there, as we'll get to it, and it seems to indicate that he's writing about himself. If you did the research on Acts 12, we find out that Mark, who's mentioned, is John Mark, a Hebrew name and a Greek name, which is not unfamiliar to us, Saul and Paul, uh, Simon and Peter, and so on. His mother was Mary, and she had a probably a sizable house because it says the people were gathered together to pray for people for Peter. Mark then seems to be picked up by Paul and Barnabas because he's a cousin of Barnabas to go out on their missionary journey. So he's a helper and a companion to them for a period of time until it says in Acts 15 that Mark deserted them and had not gone with them in the work. Well, that's the way Paul put it. But later, Paul in some of his later writings says in 2 Timothy 4, he says, pick up Mark because he's useful for me in service. In Philemon, he counts him among his fellow workers. So all the evidence would seem to point to this John Mark is the chap that's mentioned in the various texts who has received from the apostles the information about the life of Jesus and he's captured it and is the earliest of those writings. And he's got a certain style and he's got a certain reason for writing. His style is fast and urgent because there's a, a Greek phrase or word in there that is immediately or soon and it's translated as immediately in most of our translations immediately immediately it occurs 42 times in the book it's as if mark is really keen for people to know who jesus is and to get to that point quickly and because he recognizes that jesus changes everything and we get that even in this opening section here just as a little bit of a structural thing, just for your interest, and, and maybe this helps with study as well, we see the first half of Mark chronicles Jesus' ministry in Galilee, the region in the north where he was brought up. The second half of Mark chronicles Jesus' journey that goes inexorably to the cross. He goes to Jerusalem and then to the crucifixion and then to his resurrection and his ascension. Overall, Mark's emphasis, it would seem in his letter, is God's power, God's powerful kingdom. And it's demonstrated through the teachings and the works of Jesus. Jesus' teaching explains the kingdom of God. Jesus' works of power evidence the kingdom of God. And that's what Mark gives to us. And just as another little interesting thing that I've discovered in my study is it seems that the, the center point of Mark's biography account 
as I said with the two halves there, almost bang in the middle, is this declaration by Peter in Mark chapter 8. You are the Christ. When Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? And then he turns it to them and he says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. It seems to be the thematic centre of Mark's presentation. And we get it right here at the start as well. So just some uh, summary statements about our, the author. Why should we listen to Mark? It's because he spent time with the apostles and it's there and it's been taken up by uh, the early churches as representative and authoritative word of God. It's there for us and we should listen to him and what he says. And he's urgently wanting us to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ Messiah, the anointed one of God. But more than that, as he starts here in verse 1, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now I've changed what the NIV says there. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. That's an interpretive translation and that's always a challenge when you take another language and you bring it into a language that is understood. But the word that's in there is the gospel of. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now you can read that two ways, can't you? It's about Jesus, as the NIV translators have got it here. It's all about him, and of course it is. God's good news is all about Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who comes to usher in the fullness of the kingdom of God. But you can also read it this way, that it's the gospel that belonged to Jesus by virtue of him being the good news, that he himself went and proclaimed. I wonder if Mark has that in mind here. He sees both senses of it. That what I'm going to tell you, he says, and what I'm going to write, and it's going to be fast moving, it's all about Jesus, and it's good news about him. But it's also his good news. It's what he said and what he demonstrated that's important for us to listen to. It's the beginning of the good news, or the gospel, the Greek word euangelion, which means to evangelize. And it's to speak and it's to proclaim something. The good news is something that is proclaimed. God has proclaimed it to us in Christ. And the gospel today is something that is proclaimed. We get good news proclaimed to us all the time. If you think about what's out there that comes to us, the anti-racism message of good news... Sexual liberation, the message of that as good news in our society, of governmental reform and democracy, that's good news. Of mindfulness and meditation apps, um, that's good news. Of ecological products and taking part in the care of the environment, that's all good news. Intermittent fasting and other things come into it as well. If you're in any way exposing yourselves to the stuff that comes through in social media, it's there all the time. It's good news. This is a gospel. And what is a good news? A good news promises a better life. And it's something that people gather around and there's a community created by it. We know that. That people who get on board with something then become part of a community and then there's this togetherness. The good news of Jesus Christ the Messiah, the Son of God, is the best news though, isn't it? Because it's the news that really 
makes the transformation in life that we cannot achieve by self-effort. It's the good news that God has done something in Jesus for us that we cannot achieve for ourselves if we embrace all of these other good news stories and appeals and proclamations that come to us. There's hope in good news. The good news of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, is that there is a, an infinitely loving creator who has not remained aloof and separate from creation and humanity, but has actually come in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. God himself who has come and has shared with us in humanity to raise us from our brokenness and our sinfulness and our rebellion against God that brings all of the bad news into our lives. That the life that we can taste now is not as full as the life that is an offer through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. God's good news is that he has a passion for us to experience life to the full, to borrow the words of Jesus. To step up from a low level but acceptable um, good life that we think we might have to a life that's out of this world. And Jesus, who is out of this world, come into this world to bring us into it. Because we can't get there ourselves. We need to listen to Jesus. The Bible teaches that we're all sinners. And we have a low level of life that is caught up with the things of this world and the world system. But Jesus, the one from heaven, the Son of God, stepped in. That he might rescue us from that low level of life and the impending judgment of God and offer us free and full forgiveness for now and for eternity because he would go all the way to the cross as the sinless man. That's racing ahead. But we're brought into, this is the good news of a full and everlasting relationship with the God who made us. And God made us for the purpose that we would enjoy him. So John starts and he gets straight to it. But I just want to notice something else. He says the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It's the beginning. It, for, a, for a Jewish author, I'm sure he had in his mind the words that start off. The Tanakh or the Old Testament as we have it, which would have been their Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I wonder if Mark has that in mind. In the, the beginning, the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark knows that we all need a new beginning as sinners. As Paul says it in 2 Corinthians, God will do a work in us, in Christ Jesus, through faith in him as Savior, that we are a new creation, the old gone and the new come. That's a promise that's embedded in this gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark is saying to us, listen up. This is where the new life begins. This is where the new existence begins. This is where the new creation begins for all of us. And it's all in the person of Jesus Christ. He then quickly races into Isaiah's prophecy but if 
you've done your research in any way, you'll see that the first half of that is not actually Isaiah. It's uh, borrowed from Malachi with even a hint of maybe having been borrowed from Exodus chapter 23 and verse 20. But the major part, verse 3 of the quotation from the Old Testament, is from Isaiah. So why would he call it all Isaiah? Is the technical thing here. Maybe because Mark seems predominantly to quote from Isaiah. And it's, it's not unheard of for authors of the New Testament to conflate prophecies by different prophets and bring them together. And where the majority point is being made by one author, just to refer to that one author. So let's not get caught up with little things like that necessarily. But here is this promise that God had made in his word, in the Tanakh. In the beginning, God created, yes. And part of that then was the promise that there was going to be a whole new creation that would come. And it was going to be centered in the one who was going to be sent, the messenger. The messenger. Malachi speaks of the messenger who would prepare the way of the Lord. And here we're told, in verse 4, and so John appeared in the wilderness. So here's the fulfillment of this messenger who's going to prepare the way of the Lord. We're told in the Old Testament that God is coming. And the sense of his coming is that he is going to do away with sin and sinners. And reward those who have faith in him. And establish a righteous eternal kingdom forever. So actually it's a frightening thing to contemplate that he's coming. And when the messenger appears you better be ready. And here Mark says and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Here's the messenger. The one that John is convinced that is the one who has come to prepare the way for the Lord. To make straight paths for him. Interestingly, sorry to keep throwing these little things in, but it's just the fruit of study that sometimes grabs you. You know the words there, John the Baptist. Baptist appears as a noun. Actually in Mark's gospel, this word is a, is a verb. John the baptizer. So this is Mark again, and he's so active in everything. And he's talking about John who has come, and he's a baptizer, somebody who baptizes people, as we're told. He's preparing the way for the Lord coming because he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Turn away from your sins, people. The Lord is coming in his judgment. Be baptized to demonstrate the reality of that. And it says people came confessing their sins and were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Jordan River is significant for Israel. They came out from Egypt, rescued all those years before, brought through the Red Sea and then had their wilderness wanderings, but then crossed through the Jordan into the place of promise. The Jordan is a place of, if I could say it, national renewal. And here is John as the forerunner of the Lord and he comes. He says, look, be ready for the Lord who is actually going to come. And people go to the Jordan, the most nondescript of rivers, and they're baptized by him there. It's almost like the beginnings of a new national renewal before the Lord comes. But we're told something about John as well, aren't we? That he wore some odd clothing, camel's hair, uh, bound to make you scratch, and a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey, and he was out in the wilderness. He was in a place where nobody would normally live. But yet he was out there and he was sustained. I wonder if there's something in that for us that Mark is trying to convey right at the start. That here's one who comes on behalf of the Lord before the Lord appears. And he comes. And his life is one characterized 
by, an, by sacrifice and a withdrawal from a worldly system. Is that right? something that Mark is saying to us? That discipleship, as we see it then unfolded for us in the Gospels and also then in the New Testament writings, is something where we withdraw from the world system. Not that we withdraw from the world because the Lord said we're not to withdraw from the world. But we're to come away from the world system. And live under the citizenship that we've been given in heaven through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that there is going to be a sense of deprivation. A choice of sacrifice that we would choose. Because we yet know that the Lord who has come is coming again. And what we've been told today is that the Lord is coming. And that we are to be his witnesses. Not messengers but witnesses. We're to be those who declare the reality of the returning Lord who has said, yes, he's going to come in judgment. In his grace, he appeared after John, full of grace and truth, as we're told in John chapter 1. God bringing about his eternal purposes of grace through the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So that this might be termed the day of grace in which we can respond to the offer of free life and forgiveness full forgiveness with God we can respond to it today anticipating that he's coming maybe it demands I think it does of all of us a withdrawing from the world system and the way it thinks about things and instead being shaped by the things that were given in God's word and an element of sacrifice is inevitable in that that marks us out as being distinctive I'm not suggesting we start wearing camel's hair and this was his message. After me comes one who's more powerful than I in the straps of whose sandal. In fact, it's the strap of whose sandal. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Here's a man whom Jesus says was the greatest man, greatest of men to be born. He says, I am not worthy to even approach his sandal and undo his strap. The lowest job for a slave in that society. And here's John recognising that God has promised one. And John recognises that he's the forerunner of this one. He says, I can't even go near his feet. The one who's coming is so much greater. I baptise you with water, he says. I'm doing something that signifies a change in your life. But that change in your life is dependent on you following through on that declaration to God. I've no power in this. But he is going to come and he's going to baptise in the Holy Spirit. Now that brings in and triggers prophecies that God made. Where he said that he was going to give people a new heart. And he was going to fill them with his spirit. And people in the Old Testament when the Holy Spirit comes on them are unable to do things that they could not do before and are given a wisdom in life that is great. And here, John is making the distinction. He says, I can baptise in water, but I can't change you. But the one who's coming who's greater than me, he can transform you by the power of God himself. So Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, then we're told. And he himself was baptised by John. We're not given any more detail here and we have to fill that out with the other gospel accounts. But just to say this, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. I was reading uh, this week in 1 Kings chapter 9 where Solomon 
as he's going through all of his building program, he asks of Hiram, king of Tyre, for supplies of materials. And in return, he's going to give him something. And it says he gives him 20 cities in Galilee. And uh, Hiram goes to have a look at the cities in Galilee. And it says they were not right in his eyes. So they were called the land of Kabul to this day. Kabul meaning as good as nothing. Here's the greatest one that John has described here who is not able to even go and untie the latch of his shoe. And he comes from a place that is despised. A place that is as good as nothing. Here's the most high God, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come to the lowest place, who identifies with humanity through his baptism, though he needed no baptism because he was to repent of nothing because he did no sin. But he comes, and he comes to the lowest place that he might be our saviour. You notice here that then it says that Jesus saw the heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and the voice from heaven, you're my son, which implies it's the father. So here you have the Trinity in view as well. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. It blows a hole in those who teach what's known as modalism, that God shows up in one situation as father and another situation as the son and another situation as the spirit. Here we have the eternal God who reveals himself in scripture as one God consisting of three distinct persons, each of which is fully God. And without each of those being fully God, there is no God. So what is God? God is a trinity of three persons having existed in the perfections of a loving relationship for eternity. That love and relationship between the Father and the Son is expressed, but love of that nature needs an outlet and the Spirit is loved as well. And there's a reciprocal love in this. There's something wonderful about the Trinity that teaches us about God's immense love for us. We must race on just to finish up. The voice came from heaven, you're my son in whom I am well pleased. It's an echo of Psalm 2. You're my son, my beloved one, the one that God exalts to the throne, as it's described in Psalm 2, who's going to rule over all the nations. You're my son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. Teach you then to Isaiah 42, where he describes the one on whom the Spirit comes, the servant of the Lord, who is loved by him. But here we see Jesus then immediately using John's word, immediately sent out into the wilderness at once. Jesus, compelled by the Spirit to go into an experience in the place of deprivation where he would show himself to be what nobody else could be. The one who could withstand the repeated onslaught of Satan as he would come with all of his temptations and not give in. Imagine the pain of withstanding that. We give in to temptation so quickly. And that's our problem. We're sinners who give in to temptation. And when we give in to temptation, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Jesus, there was none of that. But he withstood the temptations of the adversary. It doesn't tell us that. It just says he was tempted by Satan. But the implication is... Because of where it goes in 14, verse 14, that he came out from that victorious. He was with the wild animals and angels attended to him for 40 days. 
Is there something here of national Israel having had their 40 years of wandering? Continual failure. And here is Jesus, the perfect Israelite. And he's come. And he's come to transform humanity for those who will trust in him. And he was with the wild animals. Does that mean the wild animals were subservient to him? And didn't threaten him or that they did? I don't know. I like to think the former. Here was the creator of the universe who has come. And he's in the place where wild animals at that time would come after you and would tear you to pieces. And here he is, facing the wild animal of Satan who's contrary to God's things and the wild animals of a fallen creation. And he has power over it all. And he steps out from that. And he steps into his ministry. But let's not miss the angels attended to him. If the messengers of God from heaven were needed by the Lord, it tells us something of the experience that he went through. That they would come and they would minister to him. Let's not dare to go through life thinking, I can do this in my own strength. Thankfully, as the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1 verse 14, angels are ministering spirits sent to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. God helps us in more ways than we can ever imagine. The indwelling of his spirit. But if the Lord required angelic help to sustain him through that experience for 40 days, and he never gave in, and yet we do, then don't we need to rely on the Lord in the same way and appeal constantly for his support and help. And he'll give it. He gives it to those who trust in him, who have this new beginning, step into this new creation life, and embrace Christ for all he is as the Son of God and follow after him. They will know the blessing of God in just the same way that he did. Let's pray.